Hi, Vetfolio voice friends. Ah, I'm so excited you tuned in for this episode. One of my amazing mentors from the time I was just a baby in the veterinary field agreed to come on the podcast and talk about anesthesia, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Some of you may know that my initial foray into the veterinary field was in the anesthesia and analgesia department at the University of Florida. That's where I met Dr. McCune, and she's still one of my favorite veterinarians that I have worked for and with. Not only is she an excellent anesthesiologist, but also a great speaker and educator, which I'm sure you will hear on the podcast today. Dr. McCune, a Spartan, earned her DVM from Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. After a year in private practice, she followed her husband to Washington State University to instruct students on common soft tissue procedures. The need for structured perioperative patient advocacy incited her to learn more and she went on to complete an internship at Washington State University and a residency in anesthesia and critical patient care at UC Davis. In 2009, she became a boarded diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. After spending nearly three years as anesthesia faculty at the University of Florida, Dr. McCune opened her own independent veterinary anesthesia consultancy, Mythos Veterinary LLC. That experience provided her with the opportunity to work at universities and veterinary centers all over the globe. While she took a brief hiatus of six years to serve as chief anesthesiologist and medical director for Blue Pearl of Gainesville, she's now returned to the anesthesia consulting life. Carolyn also found the time had come to give back to the community she loves as well. She's pleased to now volunteer with a 501c3 charity, St. Francis Pet Care Clinic, as well as being the proud owner of Mythos, veterinary anesthesia that keeps climbing. I'm joined today by Dr. Carolyn McCune, and this is an extra special episode for me because I met Dr. McCune before I ever even went to vet school. I was just a baby technician, technically assistant. We've been over this, that I was never credentialed. And she was the anesthesiologist on the floor at UF, my boss, um, somebody I learned a ton from, and I'm excited to have her on the podcast and bring some of that information to everybody else. Yes. And we're not even going to go into talking about Cassie's flat skiing skiing prowess or any of the other things we talked about at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, we'll leave out most embarrassing moments and all of those. (laughs) Um, So part of what inspired this episode is I recently had a friend get in touch with me and she mentioned difficulty in getting opioids And it got me thinking that opioids are becoming more difficult to get our hands on for our patients. And that makes other forms of pain management even more important. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, no, I'd agree completely. The back orders are probably not going away. I was actually able to touch base with one of the pharmacists from UF to kind of pick her brain about why she thinks that might be. And I mean, there's a myriad of reasons. Uh, There is the potential that there's a huge opioid epidemic here in the United States, and so there's less production, but there's also things like interruptions to the supply chain, and she was mentioning how so many of the original source ingredients come from areas that face heavy conflict or travel through areas of heavy conflict, and so then the supply chain just diminishes whenever there is fluctuations in the way the global events are working. In other words, until we see resolution of all conflict throughout the globe, we're going to 
to experience back orders and shortages. And so it's something that we need to probably continue to address even when those back orders ease up. So I think a big part of all of this is making sure we know what other tools we have available. And the name of the game really is going to be multimodal anesthesia and multimodal analgesia. It sounds very um, hodgepodge and uh, like it might be very challenging, but really in reality, if you can take one or two components out of there and run with it, you're probably going to be in a good position each time we come up with these back orders, no matter what the item being back ordered is. And so one of the things that I think is the most effective and yet simplest tools we can use would be the local anesthetics. Local anesthetics and local nerve blocks are things that I think every veterinarian has in their blood and they're simple procedures to be able to learn. The drugs are not controlled. They're the one set of pharmacologic agents we have that we know will stop pain transmission. Everything else may modulate how pain is felt, but they will prevent pain transmission from passing. So local anesthetics, I think, are going to be um, the learning point du jour, along with the other components of a multimodal and tiered analgesic approach for these animals. Perfect. And of course, with myself, you know, I enjoy doing a lot of dentistry. So local blocks are very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I see the benefits of these blocks when we've got, you know, 14 year old dogs with heart murmurs that we're going under and doing these procedures with. And, um, you know, we really need to minimize our anesthesia as much as possible, but of course, control their pain. So all about local blocks and the benefits that they provide. Just before we get too much further into local blocks, can you give us some other, some of the examples of different pain management modalities that we can use aside from opioids? I think that when we look at some of the um, more current information that's coming out, so things like the 2022 AHA guidelines, they recommend trying to introduce things in a tiered approach. But one of the things that is also on the table every time we have a patient who is having a procedure that might be invasive and the patient supports this would be a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. That's a component of the majority of these cases and that they benefit in many cases from this. Other things that we can include is we kind of move up in the tier level. So up to like what we'd call tier two pain management. So patients that are gonna be experiencing more moderate to severe type of pain with their procedure, we're looking at the involvement of constant rate infusions, things like CRIs. And it does not have to be an opioid that is the basis of that CRI, although we do a lot with opioid CRIs. Lidocaine and ketamine are simple things that most veterinarians have at their disposal, which can be administered as a constant rate infusion for the appropriate patient. In other words, cats don't do super great with lidocaine CRIs, um, nor do they do super great with ketamine CRIs, uh, but dogs do. And so either alone or in combination, we have options as we kind of move up that that tier of pain. I love that you brought those up because with CRIs, that's definitely one of my professional goals, something I would like to get back to having a comfort level with and using more often, but also NSAIDs. Sometimes I think in my own head, we use them fairly widely. And so I forget how effective and useful those drugs are. So I think, you know, remembering, Hey, this is a big mainstay that works really well in the patient. Like you said, that supports it. 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. And when we look at the tenets of what we consider appropriate for anesthesia, that includes things like we want to have unconsciousness, which we know the inhalant is going to provide for us. We want to have immobility, which again, the inhalant does the heavy lifting for. We want to have a patient who has amnesia. And so oftentimes we're incorporating benzodiazepines for that. But pain management is going to definitely be on that list of things. And then, like we said, it's just so diversified what we can choose for pain management. But as you've mentioned, even if you maybe don't have the opioid that you want, using an integration of local blocks and non-steroidals, we can still provide a very sufficient pain management platform for that. And, and then just to be thorough, smooth muscle relaxation or muscle relaxation is what we're really looking for for the fifth component of all of that. Absolutely. So let's jump back into local anesthetics. Can you give us kind of a quick refresher on local anesthetics? Sure, sure. We have local anesthetics and blocks that can be done very simply. Anybody has ever gone to the emergency room, they're probably familiar with a simple infiltration technique for a lot of things that are done where we just basically block the area that we're going to be addressing all the way to extremely complicated blocks where we target branches of the brachial plexus or the sciatic and uh, saphenous nerves, things that require specialized equipment to really be able to perform efficiently. But in all honesty, sometimes we have such simple methods at our disposal, things like being able to understand the oral anatomy. And as you do a lot of dentistry, the various foramens that open and have nerves that come out of them and being able to deposit local anesthetic at those. Those are really, there's only about four to six spots, depending on which form of the nerve block you may do that you need to know in the mouth. And so having a book or even a paper available and out as you're doing those dental procedures, it's very easy to incorporate things that would help to address a lot of the extractions that we might end up doing. Other things that we can do fairly simply and easily, splash blocks at the end, they're not the end all and be all for being able to do this, but they're things that most veterinarians just need to remember to be able to do and to incorporate into all of that. Infiltrative techniques, as we mentioned, and then like we said, trying to maybe, we know we do a certain type of procedure frequently. If you're a practitioner that does, uh, for example, a lot of cruciate repairs, you may be looking into either doing something as, I guess we call it simple as an epidural, if you want to try and improve kind of your broad reach of that, which is very specific of having specialized equipment where you can block out nerves that help to innervate the stifle. So so lots of options as far as, you know, where, where we can use these drugs, how we can use them. And we're primarily, at least up until recently, talking about lidocaine, bupivacaine, mepivacaine, And then now we have a longer acting bupivacaine. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure, sure. Maybe we'll just throw in there and mention that with bupivacaine being potentially hard to source, rapivacaine is very similar to bupivacaine. And so again, like you said, there's like four different options that are readily available that are useful in long-term. One other type of um, local block that we can perform with a long acting version of a local anesthetic would be performing blocks with what is called called a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine, that liposomal encapsulation may or may not extend the duration effectively. In other words, when we look at large scale studies, what we'd call Cochrane studies, where they basically do huge meta-analysis, we see that there's maybe a marginal benefit 
in verbal responders. So in humans, where they would say, yes, this does last a little bit longer. The jury's still out, I think, for animals because it is so hard to study nonverbal responders. In other words, I don't want to discourage people who don't have a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine from using the local blocks they have on hand. But in those places, in these practices where we are having a lot of difficulty obtaining opioids, we have patients who may be difficult to medicate either because they have comorbidities, so they have renal disease or liver disease, or because it's difficult for us to give them medication or the owner to give them the medication. Sometimes it has a very, um, there's very much appeal to being able to administer something that may last up to three days. And that is kind of the hope with the liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine that we could get up to a three days duration. And so when we think about it, that's a profound amount of time to be able to decrease inflammation and irritation. And usually by that point, these animals have started to eat normally again and start to heal with everything. So Sometimes they're extremely good for patients who may be uh, quite geriatric, and uh, yet at the same time, they have so many comorbidities, we're left with very few options, and sometimes even NSAIDs aren't on the table, depending on what is their level of comorbidity. So long-acting liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine might help to fit that bill. And just for my own curiosity, whether we're talking about a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine or, um, you know, some other long acting local anesthetic, I know in the past, there's been this concept of, of mixing like lidocaine and a long acting local block, because maybe the lidocaine works quickly. And then the other one stays on board longer. I feel like recently I've seen that maybe that's fallen out of favor. What's the latest on that? Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's a great question because that is definitely something that even in, um, you know, previous works that I have been able to contribute to, we used to push all the time is doing that combination of lidocaine and bupivacaine. Now we're finding that they alter the pharmacology of one another to the point where in some cases it might even decrease the effectiveness of both to do those combinations. So I would agree with you. We're starting to realize that bupivacaine sets in a little bit more quickly than we, than we thought. And so in other words, it's maybe not the 60 to 90 seconds of lidocaine, but it's maybe somewhere within the first 10 minutes. Many times, you know, when we're doing a local block, say, for example, the dental cases that we are talking about, we can place those local blocks once we get radiographs and we know which teeth are going to be extracted. We can clean the teeth that are in that area. And by that point, the local block has taken effect, even if it's not our rapidly acting lidocaine. And so uh, I I think we've started to move towards some more purist methodology and bupivacaine seems to stand up as a little quicker acting than we used to think and probably going to give us the longer duration. Yes. Now that I hear you say that, I realize it was you who told me that (laughs) maybe that technique (laughs) was falling out of favor. (laughs) Yes, but I mean, I think it's good to bring up because it's something that, you know, as Maya Angelou had said, you know, do the best you can. And then when you know better, do better. And so now in the old days, that might have been something that I oftentimes advocated for. And now we're moving on and we're trying to make sure that that education and that knowledge gets disseminated. Because as I think is both for you and I feels feel very strongly and passionately about really the best way to provide effective analgesia 
is to be educated on what is out there. It's not just the name of a drug. It's to commit to learning about what are our options and enhancing the offerings that we have. And so when we're talking about things like liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine, you know, bringing in somebody for lunch and learn or asking your local distributor if they would sponsor an anesthesiologist to come in and help you do labs, these kind of things. These are great ways to enhance your knowledge easily and practically and to be able to expand your repertoire of things that you use to try and benefit the patient in the long run. Absolutely. And understanding how these drugs work, not just, you know, I give this drug at this dose via this route allows us to create what, you know, once again, something you taught me um, is so important at the end of the day. And that's that multimodal anesthesia, anesthesia and analgesic plan. A hundred percent. And then I think the more comfort we gain as we get more experience and we learn more about these, the more utility we can see for what veterinarians have been doing for a very long time, which is off-label usage for these. So for example, when we talk about the use of uh, liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine for laceration repairs, that's an off-label use. But any veterinarian who's ever used ketamine in a dog has used ketamine off-label. It is not labeled for dogs. And so we've been doing that for a long time and we're going to continue to do that, but we all want to feel like what we're doing is safe and appropriate. And so uh, the more exposure and experience and actually putting our hands on products we're interested in learning more about helps us to be able to expand those offerings. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up a liposomal bupivacaine for a laceration repair, because that kind of segues into a topic that I wanted to talk about that, you know, like you talked about tons of benefits here with long acting pain management, but of course, one of the concerns is cost. So can you give us your thoughts or kind of how you've seen that handled as far as the cost of liposomal encapsulated? Yeah. Yeah. And that is one of the drawbacks, I think, for a lot of these products is that they can be rather expensive, you know, and so a bottle to uh, the veterinarian's office of Noceta can run anywhere between 140 and $200. And once that bottle is open, the manufacturers specific about how they want you to use it um, within the next few hours and that we should use one single puncture to be able to extract the drug. So what I think a lot of people have started to do is be creative. And so we've seen studies that were done on liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine. And what they have found is that even if it is left unrefrigerated for up to several days, up to five days, that we may still uh, have a product that doesn't have bacterial contamination. So we don't necessarily know if it's as efficacious, but we do know we don't have to necessarily throw it away for worries over contamination. And what we've also found is that if we draw out most of that drug when we first puncture it, as the manufacturer recommends, we can divide that up into one ml aliquots that we charge by the mill. So for example, it's a lot easier to stomach that if you're a very small dog who maybe between your four block sites takes a single mill um, of Noceta, it's a lot easier to stomach charging the $14 at whatever the uh, markup is going to be than to charge that dog $140 for that single bottle and basically acknowledging there's no way you can mark that up. But then somebody else in the practice happens to be doing a relationship 
uh, laceration repair. And so maybe they need two or three MLs for a larger sized animal, and then they can charge accordingly for that local block. And somebody else in that same practice happens to be doing a minor mass removal in a patient who um, has renal failure and they're very nervous about adding on any NSAIDs. So they do their minor mass removal, but then infiltrate underneath that with that. Again, these are off-label suggestions for how we're using it. But what we find is that, especially a practice that has multiple veterinarians, there's usually multiple procedures done, whether or not we're acknowledging they're all going on within that 24-hour period. And people end up turning over those bottles relatively quickly. I love that you brought up, even though these are you know off-label suggestions, I love that you brought this up because I think it at least gets people's wheels turning of how we can potentially incorporate these longer-acting analgesics and you know provide good analgesia to our patients rather than say like, well, it's backward, you know, this opioid is backordered or whatever it is. And so, you know, I guess we're just gonna, you know, do the best we can, but, um, but we don't have any options. Like we do have options. We just have to get a little creative. Yeah, hundred percent. And then I think it's also good to acknowledge that then we keep an eye on the literature to see if something comes out that says basically, you know, liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine is no better than regular bupivacaine. Well, then we switch back. But right now we just don't have that information. And if it could help and we can find a way to make it affordable, there's really not a lot of downsides to trying to do the best that we can with what we have for everything. And like we said, that can include other things like making sure we have that program balanced out with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, intraoperative CRIs as needed, making sure that we're providing for chronic pain management, things that are maybe more geared for chronic pain, like gabapentin and uh, acupuncture and other things that might be helpful modalities that we want to try to maximize the use of. And all of that comes together to make multimodal analgesia. Yeah. And I love that you said literature and NSAIDs because kind of jumping back over to the non-steroidal side of things, I understand there's been some, maybe not new, but maybe not super widely disseminated information about non-steroidals like, like Onsior, Rabenicoxib. Yeah, yeah Rabenicoxib. Yep. And so that kind of, uh, NSAID has been really beneficial. In the human field, the coccyps have fallen a little bit out of favor because they can change the way that the endothelial lining is, and that can lead to strokes. We don't see that commonly in our companion animal species. And so we've seen the benefit, which is it tends to be the coccyp class of drugs are highly selective for COX-2, which is upregulated in inflammation and uh, pain. And so we see that NSAIDs that select for COX-2 help to reduce that without much compromise to things that are COX-1, which would be things like your GI protection, renal protection, platelets, those kind of things, to the point where Rabanacoxib has got such a great profile that at the clinical doses of Rabanacoxib, we see all COX-2 inflammation, no COX-1 inhibition. And so we see a very safe drug for these dogs. Now keep in mind, it bears mentioning COX-2 is necessary to GI healing. And so if you have a patient who has had a um, enterotomy or gastrotomy for a foreign body removal, or perchance has had a GI ulcer, and they're trying to heal all of that um, GI tract, 
you do not want to use a COX-2 selective NSAID. You probably don't want to use an NSAID at all because you will inhibit their GI tract from healing. And that will be very problematic because this is very much the target for rabanacoxib. But what we find is that in dogs, um, the uh, Journal of um, Pharmacology and Therapeutics just had an article in 2022 that discusses how the literature we have right now suggests that animals tolerate this drug extremely well. And that's basically as far as they'll go. They don't necessarily go into each specifics, but for dogs who were receiving up to 20 times the dose of rabanacoxib, there was no major concerns or issues. Those dogs received that for a full month, you know, and so it's not even the labeled indication of three days afterwards or five days afterwards. For cats, at about eight times the dose, there really was no difference. And so keep in mind, though, like we talked about for dogs where they really get no COX-1 inhibition, while they get lots of COX-2 inhibition at therapeutic clinical doses, cats, unfortunately, still do get some COX-1 inhibition. And so according to this work, they were saying there's somewhere around 5% or so of the inhibition of COX-1 when you get 90% COX-2, which means it can still target things that COX-1 might be working to protect the GI tract, the renal system, and platelets, those kind of things. However, when we look at clinical indicators of those, And we're talking here about that cat who might have chronic musculoskeletal disease. They're quite a bit older. Usually they're in the beginning stages of renal failure or they have hyperthyroidism that's covering up the renal failure that's probably still happening. We don't know how rabanacoxib will do. So the latest work from very recently just basically says we don't have any studies in those cats in that population. We do have studies in healthy cats where they tried to use furosemide uh, to be able to induce some renal changes. There was, if anything, no change. And when they added in benazapril, which um, as you're probably aware of the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, can sometimes be contraindicated with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And so, uh, because there is the potential to disrupt the arterial vasodilation. And so sometimes we will say if they're on something like an enalapril or a benazapril, no NSAIDs for you. But what they actually found is that there was, and again, healthy cats, not cats with renal disease, but in healthy cats, they actually found an increase in release of aldosterone, which helps the perfusion of the kidney when they were on benazapril and an NSAID to the point where they said, maybe we should actually be using this for animals with proteinuric chronic kidney disease, you know? And so again, more studies need to come out before we make those official kind of recommendations. But the long story short is back in the day when we had, for example, um, the precursor to urbanococcid, which was cyclophenac, it was really only very moderately selective for COX-2. So we could still see a lot of COX-1 mediated problems. Now things have moved on. Rabanacoxib is an extremely good non-steroidal for reducing pain and inflammation and antipyretic. It's very good at doing the basic NSAID jobs with a pretty good, well-tolerated pharmacologic profile for the things that aren't as desirable that come from NSAIDs. And so this is another drug that I think is useful in those patients where you have your hands a little bit tied because of the many things that they might have going on. The one thing we should say, like we said, in addition to the GI tract disease, any animal with hepatotoxicity is not a good candidate for the majority of NSAIDs, the exception being grapiprant or uh, galaprant. So 
there are always going to be exceptions to the rule, but that's why it's a great idea. Like we said, for education, bring in your rep, bring in an anesthesiologist for a lunch and learn and ask the company to help support and to pay for those kind of things so that they can discuss with you, you know, the exceptions. So, you know, not to use them there, but then for the ones that fit that category, there's a lot of more advanced options uh, than, than what we used to have. We're learning more and we're doing better. Mm-hmm. So I love that you brought that up of bring in an anesthesiologist on these complicated ones, you know, ask the questions and see what the best thing is for your patient. Because of course, our recent COVID pandemic somewhat altered our approach to a variety of things in veterinary medicine, but one in particular was our use of technology. How does that apply when it comes to anesthesia? Yeah, yeah. I think that that uh, is something that is very near and dear to my own heart, which is during the pandemic, like I think many of us did, we really reflected on what do we want to use our lives meaningfully for, you know, and I think when people were faced with all of this disease, and we didn't know what was going on, it was a a very reflection inducing time to think about that. And at least for me, I know that professionally, the most meaning comes that if I can safely anesthetize any animal anywhere, any animal anywhere can be safely anesthetized, that would be a very fulfilling career. But it began to become apparent that there are some states like Vermont that don't even have an anesthesiologist physically within the state, even if they want wow. to bring in an anesthesiologist, there, there's not one physically present. And so and veterinary anesthesiologists that were that were focusing on for all of this. And so it it made me think, how can we use technology to do better? And that helped me to become inspired to launch my own company, which provides virtual as well as physical presence to patients who need anesthesia. Now, don't get me wrong. If you can have a physical anesthesiologist there, that is always a superior choice because you have so much hands-on and interactions that occur with the patient. That's great. But does that mean that a little puppy in the middle of Saskatoon who has a persistent right aortic arch and needs to have a thoracotomy done should not have an anesthesiologist available because the owner can't afford referral? No. And so that is one of the cases I truly have supported in a virtual manner where it's, it's a superior choice to not having any advisory capacity. And so I do feel like the the silver lining that came out of the pandemic was us veterinarians realizing that although we prefer the one-on-one interactions, there is a lot that is possible to do with teleconsulting and the support services are great services to utilize that, um, whether that is cytology, which we've seen the advent of a lot of teleconsulting with cytology, whether that is radiology, which has been teleconsulting for years, but now anesthesia can be provided in a virtual manner and that can help patients who maybe otherwise wouldn't have that option. And that speaks to me so much from a GP standpoint of in the era of COVID specialty, I mean, all veterinary hospitals are incredibly busy or the large majority of us. And that definitely goes for specialists and specialty hospitals. So I remember at one point calling a referral center to see if I could get my patient in. And they said, well, we don't have anything for the rest of the year. And we don't have our schedule for next year. And I don't even think we were in the last quarter yet of the previous year. So I was going, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to get creative here. So a lot of 
cases that maybe we would have referred before. Maybe we can't because of financial reasons, like you mentioned, maybe we can't just because there's nobody who can take them. So like you said, does that mean that they shouldn't get the care at all? Probably not. So having options to be able to teleconsult on multiple different levels, I just think is so cool and allows us as general practitioners to much more comfortably offer better medicine to our, to a larger majority of our patients. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, initial surface appeal is like you're saying that there is a direct service that's provided for a patient. But to me, the appeal even goes a little bit deeper than that, where when you teleconsult on two, three, four cases, that team is starting to become very proficient. And that's not because you're physically there with them. It's because they have your knowledge repeated over and over. If we look at how human beings learn, they need three exposures to material to really be able to internalize things. No matter how wonderful or brainiac you are, you really need three good exposures to learn that stuff. And so after those couple of cases, I start to hear from veterinarians things like, you know, remember how you suggested doing this and this for this patient? Well, we had this case that came in and I use that same kind of thing. And I'm thinking, yes, this is exactly what I want to see from people. I don't expect to support them for every single case for the rest of their life. I want to support them till they feel like they're at their prime capabilities to provide the best anesthesia they have within the scope of their practice. And I think that that would immensely improve patients' lives everywhere. And then I'm kind of like Mary Poppins, you know, poof, I'm gone and hopefully I'm on to help the next group of people. And so I feel like there is definitely kind of that middle ground where maybe you don't necessarily have, you know, um, like we said, the thoracotomy puppy or something like that, but you have as we've been talking about an older patient who might have comorbidities and you just need somebody to help you enough times that you're comfortable doing it on your own, you know? And, and once that happens, then you're ready to kind of consider that one of your new skill sets and you don't necessarily need to have the support service anymore, but that's why we're a support service. We support you until you're off and running and then we go ahead and we try and help the next group. So I think there's options. Definitely. It's so cool. And, um, guys, she taught me how to do anesthesia. So, um, I feel like you can teach anybody. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not true. I, you were always outstanding. At it, uh, I appreciate you saying that. Well, Dr. <laughs> McGinn, this has been such a fun talk. I want to say thank you so much for joining me. I, I love getting this information out to people and I really hope we can do it again sometime. I sure hope that too, Cassie. This has been wonderful and it's a real privilege to get to work with you guys and to get to speak to you on Vetfolio. And I hope that we'll be able to do this again in the future as well. Yes, let's definitely do it again. All right, everyone, I hope you had as much fun with that one as I did. I know I have already put my new knowledge of coxib drugs into practice. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. McCune and Mythos Veterinary, you can find her at mythosvet.com. That's M-Y-T-H-O-S-V-E-T dot com. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.